The Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Shalom again, everyone. I'm Bill Cloud, and this program is called Returning to Our Roots because what we want to focus on is the basis and the foundation of our faith and getting back to the Hebrew roots of our faith. And when we start going back to the Hebraic nature of Scripture, we begin to see things in a totally different light. And that's what we've been trying to do as we've been discussing the days of Noah. Because when we go back and look at the days of Noah, it's, it's more than just the flood. In fact, I've said a couple of times already in this series that the days of Noah aren't the flood, but actually what's leading up to the flood. The waters are just a consequence of the things that were going on. And when we look at the days of Noah, we see not only the destruction, not only the sin and corruption that brought on the flood, but we also see the picture that God always has a righteous seed, Noah and his family, that remnant of pure seed. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar and the golden image that was set up and the three Hebrews that resisted the pressure that was placed upon them to bow and to conform to this mixed and mingled mindset and and to worship this false idol and how that because they were willing to give up their lives God saved their lives and he walked through the fire with them and we brought it up to the congregation that's called Philadelphia in the book of Revelation and how the Messiah promised that he was going to guard the Philadelphian congregation because they endured all these things that were going on around them and how that actually it connects to the idea of the shaking in Hebrews 12, how that Philadelphia represents those people and those things that will endure the shaking that the writer of Hebrews speaks of when everything's being shaken and those things that cannot stand will fall, but those things that are worthy of enduring will remain. And so this congregation of brotherly love is representative of what the Messiah says will endure this shaking. As a matter of fact, not only will they endure the shaking, but they will factor very prominently during this time. They will stand out, just like light would stand out in the midst of darkness. And so now we want to to look at some other things that Yeshua had to say to this particular congregation, this congregation that kept His word. He says in verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. So again, he had already told this congregation that because you've kept my word, because you've persevered, because you have not denied my name, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to guard you in this hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. Again, in Hebrews 12, that's the shaking. Messiah said that it's going to be a time when the sea and the waves are roaring, men's hearts are failing them, the powers of the heavens being shaken. It's the same concept. Well, the congregation that keeps His Word, that doesn't deny His name, that perseveres, that is brotherly love, not only are they going to be guarded... But what we just read says that he's going to place them in a prominent position because they are going to be pillars, he says, in the house of my God. The pillars are what is holding up the porch, if you will. It's very prominent. It's in a powerful position. So taking Hebrews 12 into account, 
everything's being shaken and everything that's built on sand is toppling and falling and being destroyed and now you've got people groping through the debris through the rubble and through the darkness trying to find something that's safe and secure the congregation of Philadelphia that congregation that keeps his word that does not coexist is still standing Let Philadelphia endure, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 1. That is to endure the shaking. And so this congregation that he has guarded is going to be standing because there are going to be people looking for something that is secure. So all of that is to say, if we follow the pattern of the congregation of Philadelphia, the congregation of brotherly love that keeps his word, that does not conform to the ways of the world, If we follow that pattern, it's not just for our benefit, but it is for the benefit of people we don't know, people we've never met. I've said this already a couple of times, but Noah's obedience not to conform to his day, but to be set apart in his day and to build that ark and to preach righteousness. He didn't get a lot of people saved, so to speak, to get on the ark with him, but yet his obedience had consequences for you and for me. I'm here today in part because Noah was obedience in his day. And so our obedience to our Father, to His ways, to be a set-apart people is not just so that I can get to go to heaven. It's not just for my benefit. It is for the benefit of people that I've never met. Perhaps some of them I never will meet. That's the way the Creator looks at this. And on top of all of that, Yeshua says that not only am I going to do all those things, but I'm going to put my new name on you. Obviously saying that you're mine. I have set you apart. I have sealed you. You are my people. Now, another aspect of this congregation called Philadelphia comes to us through some words Messiah says in John chapter 13. I want to read those to you beginning at verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is this love for one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the congregation of Philadelphia not only tells us that this is a group of people that keep his word. They don't deny his name, his authority. It's not only a group of people who are going to be guarded during this time of testing, not only a group of people who are going to be placed in a position of power and authority and influence, but it's also telling us that these are his true disciples. These are the ones who truly follow him because the whole world will know you are mine if you love one another. He said, I'm going to put my new name on that group called Philadelphia. And it's not only because they've kept his word, but in keeping his word, they've had love for one another. You see, Philadelphia, in my view, is a picture of the pure seed, the set-apart ones, those who are holy and acceptable unto him, those that have made their bodies a living sacrifice. That's what Philadelphia represents, and that is what will endure the shaking 
that's coming upon the whole world according to Hebrews 12. These are the ones that Messiah personally said, I will keep you, I will guard you during the time of trial that's coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Because you've remained faithful, even though you may walk through the fire, I'm walking through it with you. And when you come through, you won't be smelling of smoke, you won't be singed. And because you've done that, because you have been faithful to me, I'm going to use you to sanctify my name in the sight of all peoples. Because one recurring theme that shows up throughout the scripture as it relates to God when he deals with the nations at the end of the days, he says this, And they shall know that I am the Lord. And from the beginning of time, the Father has always worked through people. That's a choice he made, was to work through people. And so it hasn't changed, according to what we read here, it hasn't changed because there's a group called Philadelphia, brotherly love, that have been faithful to him, and he's going to work through them so that his name will be sanctified in the sight of all the peoples. So again, Philadelphia, like Noah in the days of Noah, represents that pure seed. But, like Noah, Philadelphia is going to see the shaking. They're going to see the destruction. And they're going to see the wicked being swept away like the chaff before the wind. According to the writings of the historian Josephus, going back now to the beginning of time, the children of Seth were very virtuous people. They were uh, very knowledgeable people. And they had information, frankly, that had been handed down to them from their father, Adam. In fact, the children of Seth, according to Josephus, revealed some very interesting things about the future. So, I want to read to you from Josephus' writings. And this is taken from the Antiquity of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 2. It says this, They, that is talking about the children of Seth, were also the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom which is concerned with the heavenly bodies and their order. And that their inventions might not be lost before they were sufficiently known, upon Adam's prediction that the world was to be destroyed at one time by the force of fire and at another time by the violence and quantity of water, they made two pillars, the one of brick, the other of stone. And they inscribed their discoveries on them both that in case the pillar of brick should be destroyed by the flood, the pillar of stone might remain and exhibit those discoveries to mankind and also inform them that there was another pillar, pillar of brick erected by them. Very interesting words here as far as I'm concerned. The children of Seth who are believed to be the progenitors of the sons of God, those who were set apart, have this wisdom, have this understanding, things that were handed from Adam, and, and Adam inherited them from God. And they wanted to make sure that this, this knowledge endured the flood that was coming because Adam had told them there is a flood of waters coming and then there will be a, a, a judgment by fire. But they wanted this knowledge to be passed on according to Josephus. And so interestingly, they erect two pillars, one stone and one's brick. And think back with me into previous programs when we've talked about Babylon and what Babylon represents more than anything else. It's a mixed and mingled mindset. And how Babylon, when it was erected back in Genesis chapter 11 on the plain of Shinar under the direction of Nimrod, this rebel, it was made of brick. 
Because brick is something that is mixed and mingled. Clay mixed with straw and other components. But there's another pillar. You've got these two polar opposites, so to speak. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jacob, Esau, wheat, tear. And in the writings of Josephus, interestingly enough, you've got a pillar of brick, but you've got a pillar of stone. Jerusalem's comprised of stone, Babylon of brick. You and I are called living stones, not living bricks. And so they inscribe these words on both the pillar of brick and the pillar of stone. And the reason they did it on stone was because they were thinking the pillar of brick will not remain once the flood has done what it's going to do. But the pillar of stone, they believe, is going to remain. So I just find that incredibly interesting, that what is mixed is not expected to endure the flood. But what is stone, what is created by God, will endure what's coming. Very, very interesting concept. Also mentioned here is that Adam says that there's not only going to be a flood of waters, but there's going to be a judgment of fire. So that, I believe, is very interesting. So it's not long after what Josephus writes here that we see the days of Enosh when Seth has a son by the name of Enosh. And then, of course, in the days of Enosh, this is when men begin to profane the name of the Lord, idolatry and and corruption and mixing truth with falsehood and holy with the profane. This is when it really appeared in earnest. And of course, as we've already covered, it got so bad and so intense that God determined that he was going to destroy the world and everything in it with the flood of waters. Now, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Messiah says that there's this field and that field is the world. And he went and sowed good seed, pure seed in that field. Never hinting that he intended to sow any other kind of seed in that field, which is the world. But then an enemy came in. His adversary came in and sowed this other corrupt, defiled seed, the tear in the midst of the wheat, or in the midst of the wheat that's in the world, to subvert, to undermine, to corrupt. And they both grow together, he says. But here's what I want you to see. Let's say I had a field and I wanted to grow weed in it. And then a weed gets in it. And I'm tired of the weeds. I'm tired of them multiplying. I'm tired of them growing and, and choking out the good seed. So I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to try to get rid of it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flood my field. And so I flood the field to try to destroy all of the trash, to try to destroy all the unfruitful plants and the weeds and the tares and all of these things. But now, before I did that, I I did find a remnant of good seed that would produce fruit. And so before I flood my field, because the whole idea of having the field is to have fruit, to grow wheat, I'm going to take that pure seed, I'm going to remove it from the field before I flood it, I'm going to set it apart, I'm going to preserve it, then I flood my field, I try to get rid of all the trash, and once the flood waters are, have drained off of my field, then I'm going to go back out there with that pure seed, I'm going to plant it again. That's exactly what I see happening in the days of Noah. He flooded his field, so to speak to get rid of the tares and the weeds and all the things that were mixed and mingled and corrupt and the things that weren't fruitful. He flooded the field to get rid of it. 
but he spared and preserved a remnant of good seed to go back and then plant it later. And so then, as the floodwaters abate and Noah and his family leave the ark, here's what God says to them in Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. In other words, to the good seed, that is Noah and his family, he says, now multiply. That's what he wanted to do from the very beginning. When the, in the parable, the weed is sown into the field. Because he wants the field to be full, completely full of good seed. Not trashy seed, not corrupt seed, not mixed seed, but good seed. And so with Noah, he sows once again that good seed in the earth and says, be fruitful. Be multiplied. That's what he wanted to do with Adam. But Adam ate that mingled fruit. And by the way, after Noah and his family leave the ark, quite frankly, it didn't take very long for that other corrupt seed to show up again. In fact, just a couple of chapters later, in Genesis chapter 11, when we read about a man by the name of Nimrod, and how he wanted to be a mighty one upon the earth, and how he was leading the rebellion against God. He didn't want to be scattered abroad. He didn't want to spread out and multiply, as God instruct, instructed Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But he wanted to come together. He wanted to defy God's laws. And so he had a place built named Babylon, made of brick, where they begin to mix and to mingle once again. And so we have that seed, that other seed, that corrupt seed, once again taking root in God's field. According to the parable, these grow up together until the harvest. Now, what we see, or what I see anyway, is that the flood, it may have destroyed the wicked fruit, but it didn't altogether destroy the wicked seed. Because once again, it's going to show up. And so years ago, I was talking to a gentleman who was a farmer, and he talked about the concept of flooding a field and trying to get rid of things that you don't want to grow in your field. It might, it might work, but sometimes it doesn't. And he said the only foolproof way that you can rid a field of weeds and the things that you do not want to grow is you have to burn it. Because when you burn the field, you know, the floodwaters just kind of take care of what's on top. But when you burn a field, the heat will not only burn what's on top, but the heat will penetrate the earth beneath. And it will actually consume the seed of that weed or that tear or whatever it is. And so interestingly, interestingly enough, Adam had predicted, according to Josephus anyway, that God would destroy the, water, uh, the world by waters and by fire. And we've already seen the destruction by waters, and God promised Noah he would never do that again. And so what does the parable of the wheat and the tares tell us? Well, that there's a fire that's going to come, and it's going to consume those things. Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. He says that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Referring, of course, to the flood of Noah. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
So what Peter's telling us is that he's acknowledging the flood of waters, but the flood of waters didn't forever and all time eradicate the world of this ungodly seed, of this corrupt seed. And so what we have now, Peter says, is waiting for the purging and the renewal that is going to come by fire. Messiah tells us in the parable of the wheat and the tares that the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, this is in Matthew 13, verse 41, all those things are going to be removed. So he he says two different things here. All things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. I want to suggest to you that the ones who practice lawlessness, that's the fruit. But the things that offend, that's the seed. And he says that at the harvest... All of that is going to be removed, and it's going to be, he says, burned with fire. So that's what we're anticipating. That's the shaking that's coming. John the Baptist told us this, that at the coming of the Messiah, here's what's going to happen in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, and if it doesn't bear good fruit, it means it's corrupt fruit, but every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. So the, the scripture is very obvious here that the next thing that the world has to look forward to as far as it relates to the coming of the Messiah and how that is likened to the days of Noah, it's not going to be a destruction with the flood of waters. It's going to be complete and utter destruction and yet restoration through fire. And in the end, here's what we understand from the scripture. There will be only one tree left. There's only going to be one seed remaining. There's only going to be one word that endures. And that is the word of God, which is that good seed, which produces the one and only good fruit. And the culmination of this we see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, when he talks about the new Jerusalem. He says, but there shall by no means enter into it Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When all is said and done, all of the weeds, all of the tears, all of the corruption, all the mixing, all the coexistence, and all of that will be gone. And he makes mention of the fact that a lie is not going to get in there. A lie, a very convincing lie, will always contain a measure of truth. And so that, to me, hence, there will, no, there will be no mixing and mingling anymore. That other seed will forever and for all time be destroyed and be done away with. And only the pure seed will remain because the Father will have His way. And so we're not yet at the day when we see the New Jerusalem and this pure and holy setting. But I do believe we're in the days of Noah. I do believe we're in the days that are leading up to that time of great shaking. And so that means, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I should follow the pattern of Noah, the the congregation of Philadelphia, the three Hebrews, that we should not partake of these poisonous seeds to ingest philosophies and ideologies and words that corrupt from within. And, And we shouldn't be drinking those abominable things You know, the Messiah said they were eating and drinking. The woman of Revelation 17, who is the epitome of mixing and mingling seeds, she holds in her cup, a cup that's full of wine. And this wine 
intoxicates the whole world with her mixing and mingling. We shouldn't be yoking ourselves or marrying, if you will, ourselves with abominable practices and unholy things, but we're to be a set-apart people. We're to be uh, people who come out from among them. And here's why. Not only that we endure, but that we will be in the right place at the right time for the sake of those who will be seeking something that is secure and that is built upon the rock. The mingling results in wickedness, and that wickedness renders corruption, and the corruption brings on judgment. And so in Revelation chapter 19, at the end of days, verse 2, it says this, that he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, that is her mingling of seed. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. That tells me two things. That all corruption, all mixing, all coexisting uh, themes will eventually be completely destroyed. But it also tells me that before that happens, those who are buying into and embracing this coexistent, tolerant, mixed, mingled mindset will become violent and they will lash out at the righteous seed. If, he, if they don't do that, he has, not, he has no need to avenge their blood. So apparently, this coexistent mindset will not be able to tolerate you and me if we are being those who are set apart. And therefore, we must equip ourselves today to commit ourselves today that whatever happens and whatever is swirling around us, we will not bow down. We will not coexist. We will not deny His name, His authority, but that we will be faithful to His word, faithful to His purpose, so that He might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I know that's what you want to hear. But if so, there's a price to be paid. When you've done all you can to stand, stand. Thank you so much for joining me this week and for all these past weeks, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. If it has, let us hear from you. Till next time, I'm Bill Cloud. Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.